Tonight's Old Testament reading comes from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 5 and 14 through 17, and chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. This can be found on page 4 of your bulletin. 2 Samuel, chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray. Father, as we study what it means to understand your story so that we might see our own in it, we pray that you might open up our eyes. We can't do that ourselves. We need your spirit to do what we can't do. And we know you're inclined to be kind and merciful. We know that the smallest amount of faith can yield such blessing in this room. And so we pray that you would do that. Take our faith, come be in our presence, open up our eyes, and show us Christ. In your name, amen. Well, yesterday, my family took the very slow drive down 95 South 
which I'll recommend never on a Saturday to go anywhere on 95 South, ever. Uh, there we go. But uh, we were headed down to Lake Anna to see some friends, drop our kids off there for the day. And, um, you know, these people are really unique. They have such a gift of hospitality, which means whenever you get to their place, you, you never know who you're going to meet. Just people from all walks of life. And uh, there we are meeting and talking to these different people, and one guy happens to be uh, someone that started a magazine for another Christian denomination. We talked a little bit, and he said, hey, I have some copies here. I'll give you one. Took it home, opened it up, and there was a story in there about the Colorado shootings and a group of pastors that were in the theater uh, right next door to the one where the shooting took place, and there was actually bullets and shrapnel flying into that. And the story began to talk about just their experience there, uh, the chaos, actually, you know, trying to save people's lives by, you know, just holding them or applying pressure on wounds, uh, carrying folks out, praying with people. And it reminded me of that question we always think about, right? Where was God? Where was God in the shooting? And the answer was, he was right there. He was present as he gave these people peace of mind. He was there in the physical presence of his people, sitting right there in the movie theater. And I think it's really important that we remember that as we delve into this second chapter of God's story. We've been looking at the larger story of God, the one that unfolds in the Bible through four chapters, creation, the fall from glory, redemption and restoration. And especially in chapter 2, we need to remember that God is still there. The Bible teaches that when the sin bomb went off, God didn't run from the scene. He was in the scene. In fact, Jesus might be appropriately called the fall guy because the brunt of what sin had to bring fell upon him through his death. And so, although this is not a pleasant topic to talk about as we talk about the way that sin and evil has worked its way into reality, I remember when I was in seminary and one of the professors did this to demonstrate the pervasiveness of the fall and brokenness. He, he wrote up on the board just all these different aspects of life, whether it be creation and love and marriage and vocations and all these different things, and then he just drew a, drag, a jagged line through the, all the words. You know, to quote Bob Dylan, everything's been broken. And so as we move into that conversation, we need to remember that God is in the room, that God is in our lives. And while it's a difficult thing to talk about, it's also a bit comforting in a strange way. And what I mean by that is this. You know, it's like having a bunch of symptoms, and you've wondered what the diagnosis would be, and finally you get a diagnosis. Now, there are lots of diagnoses out there for what's going on. Some people will tell you what everything's wrong in the world is actually right in a way, meaning it's just natural. It's normal. It's part of the cycle and the circle of life. So just get used to it. That's a hard pill to swallow when you lose someone through injustice or you see greed and evil. Is it really natural and normal? Other people might just say, hang on. As technology and progress and medicine get better, it will be eradicated. Well, the clock's been ticking for a pretty long time. It's more than an evolutionary glitch. And unless they're going to just totally medicate us in the future so we have no will whatsoever, it's probably still going to be there. 
Or another diagnosis might be, if we could just reach a different level of consciousness or faith, we could transcend all this bad stuff. But even the Christian faith doesn't teach that way about faith. You take the story of Job, when natural disaster kills his family, when violence takes his servants, when disease ravages his body, he doesn't start singing, K Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. He doesn't whistle, zippity doodah. He feels it because it's real. And the Christian faith would say, You're not crazy if you feel it because it's real. And nor is it something that we should normalize because God one day, it was never meant to be normal. And one day he will prove that it isn't normal and does so through his work of redemption. When we enter into redemption and restoration, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's chapter 3 and 4. But chapter 2 is the tragedy of sin. And we're going to look at this topic through the lens of one man, King David. David, who wrote many of the Psalms, the great king of Israel. Now, the last time we talked about this, two weeks ago, we looked at one of David's songs, Psalm 8 where he talks about our glorious beginning, the first chapter, creation. That God is the source of all good and glory. That it's God who makes men and women, you and I, to reflect his glory in a special way. And he makes the world, as John Calvin would call it, a theater of glory. And if you don't understand chapter 1, if you hadn't thought about that, I I need to say to you, chapter 2 will not make a whole lot of sense. In fact, I challenge some of you that were here to write your own psalm or song of glory. I wonder if anybody did that. Because you have to understand how God has made you after his glory to even understand what you've lost. But more so what he has done. We need to start at that point. If you haven't done it, I encourage you to do it. But David was a man that was given deep insight to what this glory meant. I mean, he understood it in a general way where he would say, you know, you knit us together in our mother's womb. He understood it in terms of his talents. I can leap, I can run, I can even battle. I reflect you in my glory. He was the man that said, you have crowned us with glory and honor. He is the one that was called the man after God's own heart. No one understood the glory of God like David did. He wrote about it, he sang about it. And if I wouldn't have told you that, you wouldn't recognize it for this chapter, would you? You You're talking about this guy? What a fall from glory. Enough to make you weep. Instead, he's a manipulator, an adulterer, an oppressor, a murderer. Sin makes a proactive man passive, a do-nothing. Sin makes a contented and grateful man a covetous man, a want-everything. Sin makes a righteous leader a rogue, a take-anything. And I want to look at how those three things relate to our lives because it didn't start and end with David. It's as early as the third chapter of the book of the Bible and as current as today's newspaper. And the very same heart is reborn in you and I. What does it look like when sin does that work in our lives of do nothing, want everything, take anything? Let's unpack it together. First of all, how sin will turn us into do-nothings, proactive people into passive people. When we first meet David in the book of Samuel, young David, he is a man of action. Uh, You know, he's sent up to the front lines by his father to deliver some food to the soldiers. His brothers are soldiers at Israel. 
And he gets up to that front line, and uh, there's a great warrior, Goliath, who is mocking Israel's army and mocking the glory of God. And David's jaw drops, not because he's afraid, because he's indignant. He basically says, let me at him. Let me at him. They try to put some armor on him. He says, I can't deal with this armor. Just send me out there with a slingshot. He so cares. He's so proactive about justice and goodness and God's glory. And contrast that with what we see here. In a time when kings go out to battle, but this king isn't out to battle. A time when Israel is at war, but Israel's leader is at home. The writer gives us some cues when he says little things like, but David remained behind. And then we get the visual, a visual picture of David sitting there and lounging. The great king of Israel has become a royal couch potato. Instead of exercising his faith, he's doing the spiritual equivalent of beer curls and watching daytime TV. This great leader has become passive. Now, that's a familiar narrative to the American male, though, isn't it? Unfortunately, you know, the rite of passage or a growth basically looks like this. A teenager that pulls jackass jokes who then matures to a 20-30-something sitcom guy who's trying to be a man who then finally matures into Homer Simpson. You know, it's a fun thing to laugh at. It's not so fun to live with or to live. That's where the comedy becomes tragedy, right? But that's the narrative of the American male, which is the passive male. It goes farther back than just David, though. All the way back to that third chapter. And it's something that God doesn't take lightly. You know, on that uh, temptation or sin account in Genesis chapter 3, oftentimes the spotlight gets thrown on Eve, right? And her reaching for the fruit and eating it. That's not where God's attention is. God walks right by Eve and goes straight to Adam. He speaks to Adam and not to Eve. Why? Because Adam was to be responsible. He had a leadership role and he went passive. It was so serious that God actually thought, that's what I need to talk about first. The way sin had taken a man and woman whom God had called, you remember that great mandate and commission. He makes them after his image and he says, move out, cultivate, develop. And look what's happened. Sin's got them standing around a tree talking to the devil. Sin will make people into do-nothings when God means them to be do-greater-things. And it may be that it just doesn't affect a certain kind of person, right? Let's be fair. It's not just men. You see it in the worker that spends their time on Facebook instead of working. You see it in the woman who suffers from the Martha syndrome, as Jesus would call it, doing the many things but not the one thing. You see it in the husband that avoids conflict. You see it in the neighbor who doesn't get to know their neighbors and so doesn't know the needs of their neighbors. You see it in the retiree who's living to retire. You even see it in the 2030-somethings. I was surprised by this. There's some research done by sociologist Christopher Smith, Christian Smith, rather, and he has spent a lot of time talking to first late teens and now 20-somethings. And he posed this question to them. Uh, are we obligated to help victims of natural disaster or poverty, or political oppression. And he said, the majority of the people said, it's nice if you want to help, but you don't have to. It's a nice thing if you want to help, but you don't have to do it. Though, I was thinking about our city. Does that really jive? Because Washington, if anything, is a city where people want to get things done. 
you know, you've heard me say this before, if you can distinguish, you know, Boston about a city of education and New York about a city that wants to make money and L.A. about a city that wants to make fame and notoriety, Washington is typically a city where people want to change the world, where they want to make a difference. But I started to think maybe the, the passivity is selective. What I mean by that is this. You know, maybe you're someone that's passionate about the violence of abortion, but when another black kid gets shot in Southeast, you think, well, that's just the way it is. Maybe you're someone that's uh, passionate about human trafficking, but you won't go and talk to your friend about the relationship they're in that is bad for their faith. Maybe you're someone that's passionate about pure theology, but you have little justice and mercy in your life. You see, we can be selective about what we're active and at the same time be passive. And that's what I think all of us need to keep our eye on. Because, again, sin will make us a do-nothing when God meant us to be a do-greater things. And that's what Jesus said, isn't it? Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if anyone who has faith in me, that's anyone in this room, has faith in me, he will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. What Jesus says is, when you get connected to me because I have risen up to heaven and my spirit has been poured out on the people of God, the church, the global church, will do greater things than I did in my ministry. The scope will even be broader and deeper. God redeems do-nothings and they become do-greater things. And that's the story for everybody here that has faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Go ahead, say, I believe it. There we go. we got to do it, don't we? It's like the pardon. Every time the pardon comes up, you know, it's declared to us that grace. It says, and the people of God respond, I go, oh, you receive your great mercy. You know? It's like, I receive, <clears throat> I take your, I receive your grace. You know, you feel like I can't say it. Well, God has called his people to say, yes, greater things will I do because the Spirit of God lives in me. I don't have to be a do-nothing. And Jesus' statement reveals really the sin behind the passivity, and that is unbelief. It's lack of faith. Refusal to trust God for the task. At some level, David refuses to trust God for the task. Don't know what's going on in his heart. Wish we, wish we could have been closet psychologists. We don't know. But we do know this. There was a lack of faith involved. And for us, it may be many things. It may be the lack of faith to have that hard conversation with a family friend or a family member or friend, or receive that hard conversation from them. It may be faith, lack of faith that shows up in paralysis of analysis. You know, where I think, I can't commit to this thing in my schedule, or I can't commit to this person until I have more information, until I know a little bit more. Or if you're someone that hasn't committed to Christ, and you've been listening for a while, it may be this idea that I need more time, I need more proof, paralysis of analysis. We think it's information we need, it's actually a lack of trust. And faith. It may be unbelief that the past doesn't have the last word in my life. That the Lord can even restore the years that the locust ate. Recently, I had a conversation with a man, and uh, he, he was telling me about how years ago, when he was younger, he would go to a Christian camp, and he, you know, and, and he said, "Man, those were really good times." And I could see this wistful look in his eye. And I walked away from that conversation just saying, God, please show him that you are the God of new beginnings, that you restore the years the locusts have ate, that you start us again. Or it may be God giving you the faith to break long-standing patterns in your life. This past week I was up in Pittsburgh, uh, where I'm from uh, originally, where I was born, 
And I went out for a run. And as I went out for a run, I found myself just having to lift my hands and praise God and celebrate. Why? Because I had broken a record. It wasn't an Olympic record. It was the fact that I had regularly exercised for one year. Now, you may look at that and kind of go, hmm, those standards this guy has. (laughs) And you may have been passing me and going, is that actual running? What is that guy guy doing? It sort of looks like walking in slow motion. I'm not sure what he's doing. But I'll tell you something. I'll tell you what was going on. It was God breaking a 35-year pattern in my life. 35 years. And I had to stop and go, this is a visible reminder to me, God, that you can break patterns. And as I say that, I put myself on the line for accountability. I put myself out there for prayer. To live wisely in chapter 2 means this. Sin will always whisper, do nothing. But God will whisper, do greater things. To live in chapter 2 is to remember that. But then sin will also turn us to want everything. And I have to say to you, even as I say that, I kind of go, what's wrong with that? I mean, what's so bad about wanting everything and desiring everything? And from that, you can tell I was born and raised in America, right? Because the idea is, why not? There's no, you know, unless it's blatantly and legally prohibited, I should want everything. And I should want more of everything. Suck the marrow out of life. Seize the day. But, as the song lyric says, the world was on fire and no one could save me but you. It's strange what desire will make foolish people do. How easily desire becomes near obsession. Or what the Tenth Commandment calls covetedness and what the New Testament calls inordinate desire, which basically means desire gone off the rails. Desire gone insane. And in David's case, it was sexual in nature. But I think as we look at it, we'll realize there's a bigger picture being talked about in terms of how we understand desire and wanting everything. Now, I want to give you four things that I think define sinful desire. The first thing is this. Sinful desire grows in the dark. Now, the next day when the Jerusalem Times came out, I bet everybody was shocked except for one person. Maybe we could say two people. God and David because both of them knew what was going on inside the heart. Sinful desire always grows in the dark. As Russ was saying earlier with that passage about walking in the light, walking in the light isn't perfection. One day it will be. Walking in the light means I learn to live honestly. I begin to bring my desires out of the dark. And Jesus is the one that told us this, because it's very easy to fool ourselves. It's very easy to think, and it's one of the things that sin does. Sin sort of drives a a, a wall down you. Maybe we think it's a brick wall. It's actually a paper-thin wall. It's sort of a wall of of what you see me right now, the physical Glenn, the talking Glenn, the public Glenn, and then there's the private Glenn, right? The Glenn that other people see. The Glenn that lives in my head and lives in my heart. Same with you. We often think it's a brick wall. It's a paper wall. So when someone breaks through that other side, we may be shocked, but they're not really shocked. Jesus said it was out of the heart comes evil. James says it's in the world of desires that sin is conceived and born. Eve only took the fruit after she had bought the lie, after the conversation had gone place. And that means the place you look 
when things have gone wrong isn't the affair or the cover-up or the lie or the thing you bought that you shouldn't have bought. The place you need to look is in your daydreams and your fantasies. You need to look in the world of your heart's desires because that's where it happens. And many times what keeps the lights off is shame. And I think that's especially true when you get to sexual sin. And I want to speak to this for a second because it's so prevalent. It's here in the passage. But I think it's important. It's important for us as a community to be able to just be public about this. And I've said this before. And that is that there is not a person in this room who is not sexually broken. Whether you are a virgin in this room, you are sexually broken. That means the way that we understand sexuality is not as God meant it to be. Not in its healthy, robust way. All of us suffer from that deficiency because of sin. It may be you have a history of taking sexual intimacy, but not giving a promise along with it. You want the intimacy, but you don't want to give the word and promise. So you've inverted what God has intended, where the vow and the promise comes, and then the sex is the seal on the promise. It may be your desire for same-sex connection or affirmation has become sexualized over the years. It may be you're someone that believes that you can't live without sex. It's like oxygen. When there's scores of men and women that have lived lives, full, robust lives that have been chased and celibate. Or it may be you're a marriage person and you pledged and vowed that your body would be someone else, but you regularly find yourself thinking after you have a conversation, I wonder if that person thought I was attractive. All of us are sexually broken. All of us don't get it the way we should get it. And God means to redeem. But if he's going to do that, we have to bring it out in the light. You know, one of the things we have in our churches, and they're a little beneath the radar just because we want to preserve confidence, but we have groups of men and women that meet and talk about this very thing. And my guess is 100% of us in this room could spend some time in those groups because all of us are growing. I'll tell you, I've been married for 20 years, and I feel you know, I'm still growing and learning. God is redeeming. He redeems this area of our lives. And so, it has to come out of the dark, though, if God is to redeem it. The second thing is sinful desire will give you 1D vision. Not 3D, but 1D. Here's the verb that's used here. It stresses that David was fixed on the outward appearance of Bathsheba. That's where he was looking. He wasn't looking at a person. He was looking at a body. Now, the writer highlights, though, she was a person. What do we find? Bathsheba, she's someone's daughter, Eliam. She's someone's wife, Uriah. It's become common practice in murder trials where a family of the victim is brought in to speak at the time of sentencing. Why? Because it's to let the, the, the perpetrator know this was a person. This wasn't just an object of raid. This person had a story. This person had a life. Sinful desire doesn't want to know there's a person. Doesn't want to acknowledge that there's a person. Doesn't want to. It's a surface. You're a prop for my desire. We were watching uh, the latest Ice Age. If you've watched any of these films, uh, I know some of you, even though you don't have kids, still like to slip into those films because they're fun. But, uh, you know, there's this, the four characters are on this uh, boat, and they're out there, and it's really desperate times. And what happens? You know, all of a sudden, each of them sees their desire personified, their different greatest desire, and it's the sirens, right? The sirens calling them. And that's basically what sinful desire does for you and I. 
It personifies whatever your greatest desire is, and we slap it on the object. You know, whatever we desire the most. So that person isn't a person. They're a worker to me. I don't really want to know about their lives. I don't want to know that they had a good vacation. I don't want to know they're tired. You're a worker to me. Or it may be you're a jokester to me. Your job is to make me laugh. And so I really don't want to know the sad parts about your life. It could be just in terms of race. I only see you as an Asian. I only see you as a white person. I only see you as a black person. Or, as David was, through sexuality. Isn't that what the hookup's about? I don't want to know you as a person. I just want the intimacy. What's adultery about? It's this fantasy that I can know someone that's just only attractive. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. That's what the Proverbs teach. Such wise words. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. What happens? You know, you look at this person. You never see any flaws. You only see them when they're looking their best. And you think, that's my answer. And then you realize, oh, they're a person. And pornography, of course, is the same thing. Imagine if someone was viewing an image and all of a sudden a sidebar came up and there was a pictorial history of this person, their second birthday. There she is in a ballet costume. There they are with their seventh grade big smile with braces. Wouldn't be so much fun, wouldn't it? Because we realize this is a person that God has made. Sinful desire will try to give us 1D vision. Thirdly, sinful desires are all wired together. Notice what happens. David begins by lusting, and then he goes on to lying, and then he goes on to adultery, then he goes on to a murder. Sinful desire is wired together. Once the button is turned on, beware. We were driving back from Pittsburgh, and I could see in the distance a billboard, and there was a picture of a, a young, attractive woman, and she had a bit of a seductive look on her face. And I figured there were some words underneath, couldn't see. And I figured the closer I get, it's probably some invitation to a quote-unquote gentleman's club, which is anything but gentlemanly, right? Or I thought maybe it's about cosmetics or, or, or something to do with women's face or complexion. It was a furniture store. <laughs> furniture store. And, I, you know, I sat there and was like, for, 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 for face, for, for, you know... I, it does not compute, and of course you see that all the time. You know, you're watching an ad on potato chips, and you know, and there's this person trying to seduce you while they're eating potato chips, and you're kind of going in your mind. I don't get. Uh, well, of course the advertisers know what's going on, because sinful desires wire together. It's just getting the button turned on. Once the river is outside the banks, it'll go anywhere. Which means this: you and I cannot handle sinful desire. We cannot control it. David lingers, and he gets caught. Eve get in, it gets into a conversation with the devil, and the fruit starts to look good. In the Bible, there are some sins you're told to kill, others you just got to run away from. You don't get into a conversation with sinful desire. You don't begin to talk about it with your own words. And it takes some humility to go, I can't handle it. Those are the people that get out of addiction, right? Those are the people that finally get to the day where go, my life is out of control. I cannot handle this. Can you say that about the sinful desire that's eating your lunch right now? I can't handle it. I can't have the conversation. Fourthly, and lastly, sinful desire turns Eden into a desert where you got everything you need, but you think you got nothing. In the parable, it's clear that David is the rich man. He's the person that has everything in the story Nathan tells. And what a change. In Psalm 8, he was singing such a different tune. 
You know, it was David in Psalm 8 that was overwhelmed with God's kindness and glory, and he said, what is man that you're mindful of him? I mean, you have put everything under our feet. You have given dominion and stewardship, everything, the entire earth you've given to us. And then just a few chapters earlier, in chapter 7, God basically gives this wonderful promise of how he's going to bless David and the generations that follow. And David has the same response, who am I? Who am I that you should be so kind to me and so merciful to me? And now he thinks he's in a wilderness, that he has nothing. It's like Adam and Eve, right? God gives them the whole earth, and they go, how about this one tree I didn't get? It's this one tree. In fact, I'm in a desert, and there's only one tree, and I need that tree. This is what sinful desire will do to us. And that means two things are critical if you're going to fight it. One, I, I almost hesitate to say it because it's so simple, but it's gratitude and thanksgiving. David was in a good place when he was able to go, who am I? Have you ever been led as you're walking along the street or you know, as you're running and struggling like I was to just be able to say, I'm so grateful, God. I'm so grateful when I think about what you've given to me, my friends or... I'm so grateful for your forgiveness in my life. I'm so f- grateful for your word that, you know, that speaks deep into my soul. Gratitude. And the other thing is to have a bigger appetite and a better appetite. And that means you know, there's one thing that will eclipse sinful desire, and that is a really big, huge taste of God. I tried it out this week as I was battling a sinful desire. And I began to almost try to force myself to think about Jesus Christ and him dying for me on a cross. And it wasn't morbid. I began to think about the love involved in that and what he went through. And it was really interesting. My sinful desire began to lose power. It began to lose strength. And something stronger moved in. You know what you have the greatest desire for is going to win the battle. The greatest desire wins. There was a time when David was in the wilderness. He had nothing. And what did he say? My soul thirsts for water. Not water. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you, God. Jesus is in the desert and he hasn't eaten anything. What does he say? Your word is like food to me, God. What I'm saying to you is there is a way to get locked into God and to know God. And I know many, many of you know what I'm talking about because you've tasted it. It's been so good. Just more of that drinking, more of that tasting where you realize that desire for God and the benefits that he's given, you realize that you're rich. I mean, that's the thing that gets us down, right? We look around and go, I'm poor. I mean, you may be new to D.C. and couch surfing. No money, no job, and you're just looking around going, woe's me. It may be that you are truly poor and living in poverty. But the child that is connected with God, we're told, Jesus says, don't put your treasure on earth where it's going to moth and rust will get at it. Put it in heaven, which means to say in Ephesians 1, the spiritual riches that God gives to his people. The inheritance that's right around the corner. The adoption as royal sons and daughters. The ocean of forgiveness that you swim in. The power and strength of God's spirit living inside you and animating you and moving you. The new mind that you're given, the way you can see out in the world, riches beyond our imagination. Coming by faith. To live well in chapter 2 means that we take our desires deadly serious, but that we increase them to be more than just what's on earth. But lastly, 
Sin will, in this chapter, try to turn us into take-anythings. That is righteous people into a rogue, into a dictator. And this may be David's greatest fall, and that's his leadership, his abuse of authority. You know, when you think back on David's story, uh, David is chased by Saul, King Saul, right? Saul is trying to kill him because he sees him as a competition. And even though everybody around David is going, listen, take him out. You, you, you have the God on your side. You can retaliate. You're righteous to do so. Because David had such a high view of God's anointed, of God's throne, he wouldn't lay a finger on him. David was the one that could have wiped out all of Saul's house. Instead, he brings Saul's grandson to his table to eat day after day. David's the one that said, I have been crowned with honor and glory. Now he's using his own crown for his own glory. And the man after God's own heart, I mean, it gives you chills as this thing goes down. It's like he has ice on his heart. I mean, let's look at what happens. I mean, first of all, he prays on Bathsheba. He's a predator on Bathsheba. He sends messengers to check in on her. So they show up and they say, listen, the king wants to know how you're doing because your husband is fighting on the front lines. She probably felt so cared for. And then he grants her a personal interview. You know, the king is like a father. She probably thought, oh, wow. And she comes into the room until she saw his eyes. And at that point, you can't imagine what was going through her head. She probably felt blindsided, fearful, coerced. Yeah, could we say, well, she could have, you know, threw him off. Listen, yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> and then you have David. Who knows how she felt just overwhelmed by what was happening. He uses his faithful servants to, to be involved in this trickery. I mean, he's sending these people around. He's implicating them in what he's doing. He tells Joab, his commander, to basically pull back on one of his men. And yeah, Joab is complicit in it, but David is pulling the strings. You can only imagine the faces of the other soldiers as Joab said, Pull back! You can only imagine Uriah's face as he's sitting there fighting. He looks around, he's alone. And he's taken down. And then there's Uriah, faithful Uriah. You know, it's clear uh, that David knows it's his baby. That's why they make the little comment about pastor menstrual cycle. It's clear it's David's baby. And once he figures that out, he calls Uriah back, and he thinks, what I'll do is, under the false pretense of how's it going there, how are you doing, how's the fight going, I want to give you a gift. I want you to be able to relax. Take your shoes off, go be with your wife. Uriah leaves his presence. You know what he does? He sleeps outside in the gate with the soldiers that protect David because of his loyalty. David hears about it and calls him and goes, well, why didn't you go down? He goes, how in the world could I go do that when my men are out there fighting and the glory of God is at stake? David goes, okay, okay, I'll send you back tomorrow, but have a little something to drink. Tries to get him drunk. Uriah, even with his defenses down, still sleeps outside his door. And so David does the only thing he can do. He sends him back with his own death notice. Miles and miles he's carrying this note that says, execute him, pull back on him. My friends, this is ugly. It's, it's, a, it's enough to make you shudder. The king was supposed to be a defender. He's become an exploiter. The king was who you went to for justice. He's become the dictator of injustice. What a tragedy. But what it reminds us of is this. The Bible is always honest about its heroes. And the reason it is because it reminds us there's only one person that's fit to sit on the throne of God as king, and that's Jesus Christ. 
Only Jesus has been righteous and just and will sit on that throne. Even as great as a king was, and David was better than any of us in, that, in this room. Only Jesus can occupy that throne. And it reminds us, ask, means you and I need to ask a question because everybody here has some authority. We have some place. And so you need to know that very place where God has given you authority, it may be your position at work, it may be as a parent, it may be as an aunt or uncle, it may be as a teacher. Some level you have authority and responsibility. Please know that is the very place that the devil will test you to exploit it. I urge you to look at the places where you have authority because that is an Achilles heel. That is what he will go after because this is what the devil does. But again, God, you know, the great rescuer comes in, and Jesus is such a radically different example. The one who said, behold, all authority in heaven and earth is mine is the one that laid down his authority. The one that says to his followers, those of you that want to be greatest, you will be the least. This is how authority works in the Christian faith. This is how it works in the Bible. And yet because of God's great Lord, you know, God's great love, he comes after David. Think about what happened. David starts by breaking the Tenth Commandment. Coveting. Then he breaks the seventh commandment, adultery. Then he breaks the sixth commandment, killing. But God knows the commandment he really broke. The first commandment. Because God says when he talks to David, you have despised me. It's me that you've despised. I've given you everything. I would have given you more than everything. Do we understand that when you and I, in any way, use power on people in a wrong way. It's God we're despising because he is this benevolent king with us. Yet because of God's love and grace, David isn't lost. And this is where we'll close. God sends a prophet at the door. And because David's defenses are down, Nathan has to go in the back door of his heart. And he tells a story, he tells a parable about this rich man that takes this poor man's precious lamb And as David hears the story, he can't even let the thing finish where this righteousness, thank God, this righteousness erupts in his heart. And he just goes, there needs to be justice. And he even invokes the name of the Lord. He goes, thus saith the Lord, there will be justice. This man will pay back. And it's that point, the Lord says, that's what it says. Nathan says, thus saith the Lord. The Lord says, you're the man, my son. You are that man. And David just breaks. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He gets it. He has sinned against Bathsheba. He has sinned against Uriah. He has sinned against God, his creator, his friend, his savior, his lover, his protector, the one that had conversations with him at night, the one that knew him when he was you know, formed in his mother's womb, the one that watched him when he was all alone, the one that blessed him, the one that steered him on paths where he would be exalted and exalted, the one that always forgave his sins. And what a beautiful thing it is. The first words out of Nathan's mouth are this, the Lord has put away your sin, you will live. After all that, there's consequences that will come, but the first word he hears from God is a word of grace. And why is that? Because although David despised the Lord, the Lord would become despised and dejected for David, the suffering servant that would be despised. And the reason his sin could be put away is because his sin would be put on the Son of God. 
The Son of God would take that grief. He would bear all our infirmities. He would bear our stripes. He would bear our guilt. This is the unique role of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No other prophet claims to do it. No other prophet laid his life down. No other prophet raises from the dead. You have no other Savior. You have no other way to be forgiven. There's no other grace out there. None, my friends. I mean, you'll be, you'll be asked to be perfect or you'll be thrown in the uh, get lost pile or you'll get on this path where I'll kind of work it off. Listen, if you come to the point, if you hit rock bottom where you go, I can't work it off. I can't make it up. It's that when the words of God are so sweet. Your sin has been forgiven. It's been put away. You will live. Because the king that never sinned, death couldn't hold him. He rose from the dead. You will live. You will be forgiven. And so I end by asking you two questions. One is, who is God sending right now knocking on your door? Who is trying to talk to you right now about something in your life and you're just like, I don't want to hear it? That's the knock of salvation. Or who are you called to knock on their door? You know there's someone that you need to talk to. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. The gospel of grace. But the second thing I'd ask you is, has the grace of God worked in your life enough where you can receive you're the man? Can you receive that from God? Because only those that become you're the man become you're my son and daughter. You are my child. You're the one that I've received. So to live well in this story ain't easy. But to live well in this story is to move on to chapter 3 and 4. And that's where we'll head the next two weeks. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the way that you uh, give us the bad news so we can have the good news. The way you diagnose us with this ancient book. Thank you for your spirit's presence in Christ's name. Amen.